1: Hello and welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. My name is Tracy Morgan, your host, and today we will be speaking with Christopher Bolas about his most recent publication, When the Sun Bursts The Enigma of Schizophrenia, published by Yale University Press in 2015. We're pleased to have Christopher Bolas uh, return to New Books in Psychoanalysis to discuss with us uh, this publication. For those of you who don't know who Christopher Bolas is, he is a psychoanalyst trained at the Institute of Psychoanalysis in London, and he's also a psychotherapist where he trained at um, University of Buffalo and Tavistock Clinic. He grew up in California. He graduated in history from UC Berkeley, received an MSW at Smith College, a PhD in English literature at the University of Buffalo. He was the first honorary consultant at the London Clinic of Psychoanalysis. He was director of education at the Austin Riggs Center, professor of English at the University of Massachusetts, and professor of psychoanalysis at the University of Rome for about 20 years. He's lived most of his life in London with a few stints in the United States. He's, uh has dual citizenship and is... Uh, Married to an architect, and um, together they have three children. To add a little bit more to flesh out that bio, um, Christopher Bullis has published, I believe, 14 books in psychoanalytic uh, theory and practice. He's a really prolific writer in the field and a unique figure in that uh, no matter how you've trained as an analyst, I think I can say this unequivocally, you know his work. The contemporary Freudians know his work, the Kleinians know his work, the relational school knows his work, the moderns know his work, everyone knows his work, um, and that's a rare figure in our field with a live person that everyone, by and large, uh, has spent some time uh, with his ideas. So we're very pleased to have him with us, and without further ado, I will move uh, straight away to the interview. We're going to be speaking today um, with Christopher Bolas about his most recent publication, uh, When the Sun Bursts, The Enigma of Schizophrenia. This, this book does many things and it functions on many levels. Um, it gives a lot of technical ideas. It sort of has a, a really a reconceptualization of uh, metapsychology and schizophrenic, thinking about schizophrenia and metapsychology. But it also tells us about the arc of your your work, as a clinician. And so you do begin with yourself in this book. We meet you as uh, a young man at at Berkeley studying, and um, you begin um, to work with psychotic and autistic children. That's my impression while you're a young man in California. So I wanted you to situate for the listener, presuming that There are listeners who don't know the history of your work with uh, psychosis, with schizophrenia. Tell us about your intellectual and institutional history regarding schizophrenia. My institutional
0: introduction to schizophrenia was in 1967 at the East Bay Activity Center in Oakland, California, where I worked uh, at a residential day center for autistic, schizophrenic and other kinds of kids. That's where it started in in an institutional sense. I didn't have a particular interest in the topic, not nominally so at the time. I was working, when I did my degree in history at Berkeley, on the psychology of uh, 16th century New England Puritans. So I read a lot of their diaries, Michael Wiggleworth's diary, and other people called Mather. And I was very interested in their hallucinatory experiences and went from there to uh, Roheim's book, Magic and Schizophrenia, and other books that I could read that were that seemed related to uh, understanding more psychotic processes. I also had the good fortune to study with Alan Dundees, who was a brilliant uh, anthropologist who was psychoanalytically orientated. He, in fact, edited some of Roheim's work later on. And so There were a group of people at Berkeley in those days who were interested in psychoanalysis. So I had some intellectual interest in this topic. I, I in fact, was one of the... Well, I was the only undergraduate student in Frederick Cruz's graduate seminar. Yeah. And I say without any shame at all that um, I I think he's a wonderful guy. I like him. He's a brilliant man. I'm very fond of him. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't agree with him, but in a in a way and i don't wish to get too personally about this because mm-hmm. fred's not in the room no i think he's taken a very particular position vis-a-vis psychoanalysis that makes him comfortable it's easy enough to take the position he's taken uh and he basically bailed um i understand that different people for different reasons have had enough psychoanalysis and he had enough of it and so he went his own i then went on the in the other direction i went working with the children. Then I went to the University of Buffalo to do a uh, degree in English literature. And I taught a course on contemporary American fiction and madness. And I was oversubscribed. There were too many students. And there were three or four of them who were schizophrenics. And they were there. They were obviously in great pain. And I just, after meeting with them, walked across the lawn, the, the grounds from the Department of English to the <laughs> Department of, of of Health Services and walked up to the secretary and said, "Is is the tr- clinical director here?" And she said, "Well, as a matter of fact, he is." And I said, "Would you mind terribly if I could just meet with him?" And um, he agreed to provide me with a training in psychotherapy with with students. And um, basically, the the gist was, if it was successful, then it would be we could we could keep going. And we, we created a program for people training in the humanities um, in, at the University of Buffalo in the late 60s and early 70s. Uh, and some of those folks I saw were psychotic. So that's kind of how it evolved in, in that respect. And then, you know, trained in psychoanalysis in England, um, where, you know, it was common for all of us candidates and young analysts to work with psychotic patients. They had a completely different view of psychosis in Great Britain than the one that prevailed certainly in ego psychology and in other schools of psychoanalysis in the United States at the time.
1: In the book we encounter, I was, I was struck by your original training in history um, as an undergraduate uh, because history plays an extraordinarily prominent role in this text and i think it plays a profound role in your particular thinking about schizophrenia in which i think you you argue that the loss of the capacity to historicize is perhaps central to the development of a schizophrenic mode i have a quote here when a breakdown occurs the self loses the function of historicity you were initially trained as an historian and yet you found history to not be as challenging as literary studies you reveal that in the book as well and yet your clinical work clearly, and particularly in this book. um, I found you much more of a literary uh, psychoanalyst in almost all of your other publications, but this one, your interest in history, uh, comes to the fore. You tell us that we return these patients to their historical selves, and you recommend things like that we take a history, which I was struck. Does anyone take a history with a schizophrenic patient anymore? Is that even something that is is encouraged um you describe working in the in the program in the east bay um with the psychotic and autistic kids and that at the end of the day you all would create kind of the day's history you write a chapter on history a nation's madness which is a interesting look at hofstadter and um and then also the transformation of american culture um and the, and the breakdown in the 60s and yet i found myself thinking about what's the status of history uh, in psychoanalysis currently? History as ameliorative about the status of the patient's genetic history. So what's your sense of, of history, small H, really not a capital H, but a small H within psychoanalysis contemporarily?
0: Well, to go back to, to, to schizophrenia, and start from there. Yeah. It really was uh, a practical decision, let's say. Many of the schizophrenics I was seeing in London, um, were they were 17 years old, 18, 19, something like that. And the typical symptom would be that the mother or the father or somebody would see them sort of standing in the middle of the room just staring. And so sensitive enough parents knew something was wrong with their child, but they didn't know what it was. It was not uncommon for me to get a referral in which I would be talking to an adolescent person who was um, staring blankly at me? And rather than to go for feelings or ask any abstract questions, I decided to go to the quotidian. So I would say something like, um, "Let me see now. You you come from what part of London is it again? Do you come from uh, Brixton? Is that it? And I would start out with very simple questions that had to do with location in space, and these were questions that the person could could answer and I wanted them to be able to answer very simple questions having to do with space once I got that established and I mean that could take um, that could take a long time all right so you you're not from Brixton you're actually from crouch end so. Um, Where do you live? I mean, do you live near the the woods or do you live, what part of town do you live in? So I would go that way. These are very seemingly not psychoanalytical questions at all. Once they were returned to space, because what happens in schizophrenia is there is a sudden and radical dissociative moment in which they lose their relation to space and time. So once I got them located in space, then I could go to time, which is history. So I would say, so, um, all right. Now, you've been having a bit of a rough patch. I understand from your parents that something happened on, was it Monday or uh, what, what, was it Sunday? Now, um, there's a technique here. The yep. parents yeah. might have said to me it was Sunday. But I wanted the patient to tell me when it happened. I wanted the patient to rediscover that time was itself important. And so they would then fumble about. They were really confused extremely confused, very lost. So often a simple question like, well, what was this? Take take me back to Sunday, would you please? Um, Do you remember what you were doing on Sunday? You know, you and I can probably say what we did last Sunday. But for somebody who's had a schizophrenic episode, a question like that is extremely challenging, but you can work with it. Mm -hmm. So by then getting back to the day itself and then working back and feeling your way through the events You then get to the moment, to the onset of the psychotic episode. And in all of my experience, it's always been something which will strike most people as as just banal, hurtful perhaps, a slight, uh, a criticism, uh, something. Mm -hmm. By going back into history, of course, as you go back to the event and they describe it, you get from their descriptions embedded but unexpressed affect. And so it's at that moment that the analyst can say, oh, my God, um, he said what? He said that you were um, an oaf, an elephant? Yes. My God, that's terrible. I mean, that's devastating. And you were in a room with your friends and others, and, and this chap said that to you? Now, the point there is to evoke the affect that has not been experienced, but has been split off through dissociation. Uh, And again, this is history. You're going back into time Mm -hmm. and you're just digging around there, trying to find out what actually happened. Now, this may seem incredibly simple, but for a schizophrenic, he or she has lost both spatial and temporal locality. They're lost. They've lost themselves in space and time. So when I write about how one can reverse the schizophrenic process, if you can get to the event that set this off if the affect embedded in that can be released if you can talk it through it's not simply the yield of information per se that's so efficacious although it is it is important but the functional accomplishment here which is the rediscovery of time mm-hmm. and the rediscovery of one's spatial localization That is to reverse psychotic process because one of the things that happens with a schizophrenic person, with a schizophrenic process is loss of temporal and spatial locality.
1: I'm thinking about uh, so many things and, embedded in what in what you just said certainly in my my own training there's something we call asking the object-oriented question which is exactly what you're doing where you don't ask about the self you ask where were you what was that movie um and i'm thinking about the way in which you say it takes an incredible amount of time as you sort of ask questions that aren't about one's inner experience And that, to my mind, what you're doing by that is establishing yourself as as non-threatening a presence as as possible in the room. And and yet, you know, you're really challenging current understandings of what schizophrenia is all about. in you're telling us that we can go and we can introduce the idea and find that, that particular moment. And then you offer an emotional communication, which clearly, um, if you've got the history right, is going to resonate with the patient. And I would imagine yield more speech. But in the book, you talk about how we currently, the current sort of standard of care, I think that um, instead of being encouraged to talk, you tell us that schizophrenics are uh, people who've had a psychotic break are subject to relational isolation, radical incarceration, dehumanization, um, the giving of mind-scrambling drugs. Can you say something about how did we get here? It seems so upside down. What you're talking about is a very experience-near um, process, and yet we are we are now offering schizophrenics very little speech. Um,
0: yes, but I would say that, that our nonverbal relation to Mental distress or schizophrenic processes uh, goes back 70,000 years. I mean, there are recent discoveries in which the skulls of uh, early Homo sapiens were showed very small borings into the skull, and the theory here is that these were people who were viewed as occupied by demons. So, by boring small holes into the skull. The demonic could escape and and presumably the person would get better. I mean, we've been looking at mental issues from the biological or organic spectrum since the beginning of human time. It's as if we were refusing one essential fact that mental life is that which separates the human being from all other creatures. We have minds, other animals have brains, but they don't have minds. We have minds. And so mental life is hazardous. Uh, it's just intrinsically hazardous. Um, and we're more vulnerable than we realize that we are. The invention of psychoanalysis, which liberated, amongst other things, women from being incarcerated in um, horrifying uh, hospitals and asylums in the 19th century, viewed as uh, evidence of brain diseases, organic disorders, which Charcot and Jeannet indeed began to reverse, but which Freud liberated in Breuer through the Tolkien cure, is a remarkable moment in the history of our understanding of distressed people. It's a sad thing that we reverted back to a love of the brain again through contemporary neurosciences. That's the future. It's kind of like updated phrenology. I don't mean to be I don't mean to be dismissive of the neurosciences. I support neuroscientific investigation. I just don't support turning that into some sort of uh, divinity that we believe in. It's kind of faith-directed, and somehow it's going to lead us to a cure of people. And it's also been misleading in the sense that there are statistics which um, simply disprove the notion that that schizophrenia is organically based. I mean, how do you explain the fact that schizophrenics – that there are two and a half more times schizophrenics in metropolitan or urban areas than in rural areas. I mean that's that's just not a genetic predisposition. Right. Uh and the, even in the rural areas that um a significant percentage of those who have diagnostically schizophrenic episodes self-cure. Mm-hmm. They get better without any treatment. Right. If you look at the government of Finland, which is devoted more than any other government that I know of to the study of schizophrenia, they 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 find that approximately eighty percent of the schizophrenics treated in Finland, reversed the schizophrenic process without the use of medication. But I think North America is a sad story, really, of a turn in the post-war years towards psychotropic medication, but over medication of many kinds uh, to give to Americans as economically uh, cost-efficient, meant to be convenient solutions to both medical problems and psychological problems. I mean, we could spend a long time discussing that one, but um, it's a sad, sad story. Um, And I don't know when we're going to come out of this.
1: One of the powerful um, arguments that uh, buttresses the uh, the entire book, I think, has to do with um, an attempt at a... uh, Maybe a reinscriptive uh, transformation uh, of the word schizophrenia um, that um, sort of to desegregate schizophrenia. Schizophrenia is more and more a segregated mental illness it 's the one that 's over there right um, and I mean in fact, some clinicians in you know my conversations with them about you know this book and the enigma of schizophrenia. And these are people that work with psychosis. Well, the word schizophrenia, why is he using that word? And I kind of laughed because I said, you know, I think what he's doing in this book, if you read it, is that he's he's taking a word that is freighted, you know, and weighted with such, you know, such stigma, such so many dead end ideas and attempting to breathe. Life back into it, sort of like you know. You think about the word queer. You know, it used to mean one thing, and now you know, queer has a whole different meaning. Like I, I had the sense that you're doing something with schizophrenia and with with just the word the word itself to re to get us to re experience it. So finally, re, to, to re experience it in, in the hopes that maybe we can begin to um, work differently. As I read you, the Sullivanian conceptualization came to mind. He writes, schizophrenia is a human. Process is is what I picked up on part of what of of the work you hope um, that your book does. Well, I wanted to
0: try before I'm gone to uh, write (laughs) down what I believe I've learned.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh,
0: I owe it to my patients because the the schizophrenic people with whom I've worked have taught me a great deal. Uh, What I know uh, for the most part is what I've learned from them. Mm -hmm. And so I felt I owed it to them. I think the question, the debate as to whether I should use the term schizophrenic or schizophrenia, I think it's a valid debate. Uh, I spent a lot of time thinking about that issue. But at the end of the day, it was one person in particular who said that he wanted to be described as schizophrenic. And he said, because that's what I am. I am schizophrenic. And actually, it wouldn't be true to say that he was proud of it. It would be, I think it's more accurate to say, it's kind of like saying, well, I'm Greek or uh, I'm Kenyan. I'm I'm from another country. I don't live in your country. And where I live is very particular. Now, I, I think it would be untrue to ease ourselves away from this by saying, well, this is just another lifestyle or this is just another form of being human, although that is true. But it's also the case that, People who are schizophrenic suffer at times in just horrifying ways. And one cannot walk away from the horror of that suffering. So uh, I think it's a fair question as to how do we talk about this? How do we address the human dimension here, but not make this so anodyne as to constitute a kind of uh, politically correct cover up well-intentioned? Let's just include them amongst the rest of us and let's just call this another form of, of being. I don't think that's that's fair to them. But on the other hand, if a schizophrenic were to say to me, Christopher Bolus, I don't see myself as schizophrenic. How dare you write a book about schizophrenia or the enigma of schizophrenic? I find it insulting, diminishing, demeaning. And that's just not how I see myself. I would apologize. Mm-hmm. I would I'm very sorry uh, because I would understand what that person meant. So there are many different people who have schizophrenia or who have suffered schizophrenic episodes there they all have very different points of view about it and uh, to try and find a common term or language or agreement amongst the the group of people that we're talking about i think it's impossible but i accept the criticism people want to be angry with me about that uh accept it there there, there's reason to be cross Mm
1: -hmm. i think that there's been an attempt to sort of sequester um schizophrenia rather than um think of it uh as I do, and I don't know if you think this way. I mean I think of schizophrenia as sort of it's like on a continuum of of human experience, of maybe I might think of schizophrenia as an extreme form of narcissism. That might be my conceptualization. But I like I like to have schizophrenia on a continuum rather than locked up over there as something that is um, outside of me or outside of what could be my, uh, my experience, not to diminish the intensity of the experience, but to also understand it as, as, um, human. So to move on to another portion of the book, um, you put forth a very, uh, Interesting idea about sort of a maternal order, and I think you rethink a key uh, Lacanian idea regarding psychosis. For Lacan, this you know his thinking is the psychotic person lives outside the symbolic order; they're too much in the maternal, they're too far removed from the paternal, uh, where rules and regulations are paramount. But in your thinking, um, the schizophrenic lives too far away and too much, perhaps. Outside of the maternal order, you have a beautiful uh, quote from Blanchot about uh, what the schizophrenic can no longer hear. And this is the Blanchot quote, the unspeaking speech that is the soft human murmuring in us and around us. So I wanted to get you to to talk about how you differ, where you do differ from Lacan in your understanding of of schizophrenia.
0: Schizophrenia is a process. There are steps, there are stages in its evolution. My view is that the first onsets uh, for people who become, let us call it, the exemplars of the schizophrenic self, this was stiff walking, zombie-like individual populated in the hospital, it starts really in latency. They're al- almost always around ages six, seven or eight, something shocks the self. Then in adolescence, there are aftershocks or other events which lead to radical dissociations and so on and so forth. And then. The medications which transform a very distressed self into an individual whose cognitive functioning may be impressive, that is, they can read a newspaper or they can perform actions, but whose psychic life has basically been numbed for the rest of their existence. So there's a whole sequence here. Sequentially, it's my experience that in their latency, they're escaping from the maternal order through the symbolic order. They're usually very precocious people. Many of them are readers, writers, hardly averse to the rules and laws of language, as Lacan would argue. They seem, in fact, desperately attuned to and in need of the uh, invocation of the name of the father. They are rule-bound people. So um, then it's as if trying to live within this symbolic order is inadequate to structure the self. Now, in my book, being a character in a chapter called Why Oedipus, I again take issue with Lacan and with uh, with Freud over the dissolution of the Oedipus complex for Freud and on the symbolic order for Lacan. I do not think that the resolution of the Oedipus complex has anything to do with the uh, exhaustion of the child whose Oedipal wishes are not met, therefore fatigue sets in, or that the, the child is structured by and has to accept the symbolic order. no. I think what proves hazardous to the self, what concludes that era, is group life. And indeed, in Freud's writings, Group Psychology, Analysis of the Ego, and so on, we see a very clear, as always with Freud, a very clear articulation of what breaks things up, what's more important than something else. Freud actually does play around with the idea that group life indeed does usurp the symbolic order. Uh, but I, in that essay, why Oedipus discussed not just Actual group life, when a child goes off to school and discovers that his or her family, the nom de pair of their order, is not uh, a, a guarantee. It's not an agreed upon uh, collective assumption. In that sense, there is no such thing as societies. They're just minds that interpret societies. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think Lacan's uh, theorization is partly correct, but it's way too simplistic. Because in addition to that group that we're talking about here, there's a, there's an even more complex group, and it's the group of internal. Objects right. and so that internal object world the fact that we have many mothers and fathers and others based upon The vicissitudes of instinctual life and have affective life makes our mental lives More complex than the self can deal with what do we do? We dumb ourselves down right. So one has to start with that in my view and then start looking at well Why do some folks start to uh, break down? Well, they have episodes mental episodes that dispossess the self of its location in time and space and for which there is no apparent or immediate remedy because the individuals around that child are themselves trying to simplify the hazards of complicated mental life through, let's call them, ordinary, simplistic structures of getting on with existence, um, the routines of the everyday. That's why the everyday is so, so consoling. But it's at that point that faith in the symbolic order for the schizophrenic starts to break down. Then what do they do? They regress. One can use that term back to the maternal order, back to what they can trust, in a sense, which is the sensorial,
1: to the somatiform,
0: to the somatiform. The they go back right. to body sensations, to to the physical feel of the world, to the smelling of the world, to the physicality of objects, to the physicality of the phonemic structure of words, to the sounds of words, sound, sight. These sensor sensorial, primary sensorial ways of of apprehending the world, it's where they go. So they go back to the maternal order uh, for respite. And if the clinician can find them in that order, can accept that that's where they've gone back to, they've gone back to the beginning, basically, then you can, I think, begin to understand them in much more profound ways, and you can help them recover their belief in language because they've lost it, their belief that that there's something helpful about mental life because they've lost their belief in mental life. The mind for them is the most hazardous thing that's ever happened to them. Mm -hmm. And then their belief um, in uh, human relations, which have struck them as disasters. It's a complex process. By no means am I claiming that this book integrates a theory of schizophrenia i don't think it does it's it's more of a uh, autobiographic uh, articulation of what they've taught me over time and you know schizophrenics kind of pass on notes to you you know they say well, let me tell you here about this uh i learned about animism through schizophrenics at the austin rig center i have no idea that one of their assumptions i don't assume this is true for all schizophrenics but enough of them is that actually the object world, that that chair over there or the lamp, whatever, might look to you like it's inert and not organic. In fact, it's alive. So it's best to walk very carefully around because you don't want to wake it up. I didn't know that. I hadn't read that. It doesn't mean to say that it isn't written somewhere. I just never come across it. So when I learned from a couple of patients that that was one of the reasons why they walked the way they did in the inn at Austin Riggs, because they didn't want to wake things up,
1: it made sense to me. You have a very complex metapsychology, I would argue, from, you know, your many, many years of thinking and writing. Um, and you have a chapter in this book called Hiding the Mind. And in that chapter, I would argue that you you give us a, an archive of terms um, that you use to think about schizophrenic functioning or I was thinking schizophrenic defenses. That was what came Mm-hmm. my mind. And many of them struck me as very new. Uh, schizophrenic I'm going to name some of them schizophrenic business, psychotic empathy, the schizophrenic gaze, psychic disinhabitation, schizophrenic fetish, schizophrenic reversibility, metasexuality. I wanted to ask you, how do you see these terms that I, you know, are uniquely yours, um, fitting within um, what more of us are coming to think of as a Bolasian uh, metapsychology? can you Can you situate them for us within your larger um, over
0: well, the whole idea that it I find horrifying the velocity in psychology I mean oh come on uh no i'm <laughs> I, I we're looking at words like metasexuality or uh, psychic dishabitation. Mm-hmm. These are ways I've worded something that I think psychoanalysts have seen for decades. they've just used different words, so I don't think i'm seeing anything that other folks have not seen. I've just put it in different language. Mm-hmm. So uh, at the at the end of the book, there's an annotated bibliography, which um, where I didn't do any reading for this book. There are reasons for that. I, I did the reading after it was finished because I felt I owed it to my colleagues to find out, well, who'd written about this. And it was a revelation. It was wonderful. Uh, there's some great books uh, and by contemporary authors on schizophrenia, which, actually make the same argument I i make. David Garfield in Chicago, for example, uh, he makes this argument and his writing is wonderful. There are a lot of people like this. Um, I accept that my quote unquote metapsychology is complicated because I tend to be an essayist I never sat down and put all my different theories together in one place. It so happens that someone called Sarah Nettleton is, mm-hmm. is publishing a book or Routledge is publishing a book this year, 2016, called um, The Metapsychology of Christopher Bolas, An Introduction.
1: And I've taken her class, full disclosure. So, you know, I mean, she's terrific. Um, I look forward to talking to her about her book.
0: Okay. okay. I, right. Uh, well, I've read her manuscript, and it I must say it's helpful because I can see where she's able to explain things or put ideas of mine next to one another um, or link them in ways that I never attempted to do this book is a plea if anything for each one of us every analyst to write about his or her clinical work with challenging people whether they're schizophrenics whether they're manic depressive people whether they're pedophiles um whether they're terrorists i think we need to write about our experience we shouldn't be afraid of the inevitable um criticism that we lack evidence What's your evidence for this? Well, we can't produce the evidence for obvious reasons. It would violate confidentiality. We can't do it. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't write. So I know or I knew when I wrote this book, I was going out on a limb. I knew it was going to or could evoke very negative uh, reaction from differing communities of people for differing reasons, and some of them, no doubt, quite valid. Why should anyone believe this book? I mean, I'm not asking for faith based
1: readers.
0: (laughs) Why should anyone be a faith based reader? It's ridiculous. Uh, I have written what I believe I've learned. I could be wrong. And anyone reading anything by anyone, in my view, should have a healthy skepticism about the credibility of anyone's personal findings. And that's all this book is. But for me to have kept quiet, to just said, oh, well, don't do it, because this is just what you think you know, would mean that I would have just walked away from all those wonderful people I've worked with. And frankly, I love. And I said, okay, you taught me a great deal, but Tompi I don't want to take the flack. Uh, sorry, but um, I'm not a scientist. I can't prove this. And um, that's it. They taught me so much. And they made me a better person. I owe them. And that's why I wrote this book?
1: I know that you um, published an excerpt from the book, uh, which many listeners may have may have had the opportunity to read in the New York Times in their uh, blog or in a section called the Couch, and there were a, there was an outpouring um, in response. Do you care to talk about that about what what the criticisms um, have been of uh, of your thinking regarding schizophrenia?
0: Well, I was forewarned by the editors of The Times of The New York Times don't read the blogs. <laughs> well, I'm sorry, but if you've written something, you're, you're you know, even if you say you don't read them or you're not going to read them, you read them.
1: It's a tough crowd.
0: <laughs> yeah. Some of the criticisms I thought were quite good. They were quite legitimate. Other criticisms were just very strange. But the ones that I found most odd, and also the American Psychoanalytic Association has a, a website or something uh, uh, where this, the article was put on their site. And these were psychoanalysts speaking now and drawing making assumptions which were just astonishing for example i wrote about a patient who uh, lives on an island in norway and one contributor said that well fortunately i've never been in the same room with this woman because uh, if i had been in the same room with her my life would have been in effect at risk because she was so disturbed now how would this person know That i had never been in a room with this patient in fact i have worked with this person in person many times most of the work was um on the telephone she was in norway i was in north dakota but i i've been in the room with her so there's that kind of assumption that's one which i just found astonishing how can this person presume to know something like this also uh i wrote a book called catch them before they fall and I refer to it in this book as well. Folks were reading the excerpt. They they didn't read the book when they were coming to their conclusions. I've always worked with and formed a team of people, regardless of whom I'm working with, regardless of the patient. So I have always had a general practitioner, an ordinary doctor, a psychiatrist, either a social worker or a counselor or a fellow analyst, and if they're psychotic, a family member. Mm -hmm. And I've always had a connection to a hospital. So I may not let the patients know about this team of people that I work with, but I never work with anyone without a team being in the background. And with psychotic people, they will know the members of that team. Mm -hmm. So the assumption that I was somehow going off and working with these people with just solo is, it's irresponsible. It's we
1: shocking. think the worst of each other for some reason. I mean, well, it's that's
0: probably. a well. That would be an interesting thing, which is why do we treat each other so badly? I I don't know any other profession, sadly, that I can think of where people treat each other so badly as do psychoanalysts. Mm-hmm. It's it's very sad, especially for me, I suppose, and others when you know, I'm in my seventies now. I wish I could look out on these so-called golden years on. 40 plus years of participation in this profession and think it's a great profession. Psychoanalysis is a wonderful task. It's a wonderful task. It's a meaningful project that was launched in the late 19th, early 20th century. But it's one of the worst professions that I think exists in the so-called professional world. Um, And it's very sad. And I don't know what we can do about that. There are reasons for it. There are analytical reasons for it, but I'll just end this by saying that my some of my patients, of course, they read the blogs. They saw what what psychoanalysts were saying, medical analysts, and one of their responses was, "Are these people crazy?" And I said, "No, you know, it's this, it's that, etc." They were upset about the failure of the members of the profession to approach this topic, or the writer, in this case, myself, with a degree of open mindedness. It was the degree of fierce, ferocious, closed-mindedness disturbed a lot of people.
1: Right. It seems, I mean, the narcissism of minor differences and, um, how difficult um in this work it is to uh, encounter difference. As if we're not prepared for somebody to to see a patient differently than how how we do. And yet our work is extraordinarily uh subjective. And it's as if it has to be um desubjectivized in order for us to um to feel safe.
0: I love difference. I mean I really love difference. Mm-hmm. I the most helpful thing for me would. Was- in my work with my patients is when they disagree with me and correct me because mm-hmm. that's extremely interesting to me i am a champion i have always been admit the many different approaches to psychoanalysis whether it was peter sister systems theory whether it was the work of um, linguists in psychoanalysis whether it's the neuroscientists i mean i'm i'm interested in the very different perspectives people bring i appreciate the work of Lacan, of Melanie Klein, of Kohut. Of, I can't think of a single school or group of psychoanalysts that I don't think have made valuable contributions to our understanding of human beings. What I object to is not that not the differences It's the vicious treatment by certain individuals of others in others' groups. That's what bothers me. It's the viciousness that I find disturbing. And I don't know that it's the narcissism of a small difference. I think it's to do more with tribal group politics and with um, showing one's fellow members of the tribe, of their particular institute. Aha! did you see what I wrote about? Yes, good job. Well done, mate. You know, you really did. Well, that really got him or got her. Well, good for you. I mean, I
1: think it's just simply primitive and vicious, but
0: I don't think it's to do with narcissism
1: as such. Well, I think, you know, Sandra Buchler who we've interviewed here, and also for the listeners, I want to you know, let everyone know that we did, um, Christopher and I did speak uh, a number of years ago about um, his book, uh, Catch Them Before They Fall. So that is a, a really worthwhile interview if you don't know that book and you want to get your feet wet. Um, but Sandra Buchler, who's an analyst here in New York, you know, says something that I, I think is really apt, which is that we, um, that the work is rigorous that the isolation that we experience as clinicians um, particularly in private practice can be intense um, that we're 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 addled with with all kinds of affects and feelings and ideas that are that are impacting us in our work and um, she she writes about people um, presenting papers at in the evenings after listening to patients all day and all the aggression that's built up and people just taking each other down and and tearing each other other to bits. But okay, so here's a question about about difference, you know, in, in different ways of, of conceiving of things. Um, so as I read the book, I wanted to, I, I kept thinking, well, what does he think causes the schizophrenic? I would call it a defense uh, or you know process to develop. And you suggest that um, it's uh, an attempt to quote protect the self against the hazards of the mind, which I think you've made clear in the interview. So um, you see this as an attempt to salvage an aspect of one's one's person in your conceptualization of the of the schizophrenic process. Now I, as you know, am influenced by Hyman spotnitz, and his idea is that schizophrenia is a defense against destructive impulses and feelings toward needed objects that are erected by a nascent psyche uh, that may have more aggressiveness than it can manage. In a sense, your schizophrenic turns inward to protect something from within, while the Spotnitsian schizophrenic is frightened of damaging um, loved and feared others. I wanted to ask, what, what do you think of this idea?
0: I think it's probably true of all of us. <laughs> so I, I, the problem I have with, redu- with reducing something to a single concept That it's the problem is reducing it to a single concept. Sure. Uh, I'm more comfortable with the notion that mental life itself, across the board, is a hazardous enterprise. That uh, if we look at childhood, the stages of childhood from birth, toddlerhood, uh, early Oedipal, Oedipal, post Oedipal latency, each one of these stages, which we've gone through and we have a kind of amnesia about them, involves breakdowns the self is breaking down something radical and new is developing and, and there has to be a kind of reinvention of the self it's biologically driven in some ways it's uh, it's environmentally influenced in some ways but each step in the course of childhood is itself remarkably hazardous uh we're looking at wow, why are there so many disturbed kids in the united states why are there so many shootings taking place why do adolescents go into schools and shoot fellow adolescents. I mean, it's not happening all over the place. One can become too troubled by this, so to speak. But as a metaphor, what, what does it mean? Are these people mentally ill? Well, they have minds, and minds can take people down strange roads, and they can do strange things. And that's what we—that's who we are. So I—I'm a bit reluctant to to put everything into a nutshell, except to say, mental life is hazardous. And schizophrenics have have episodes which throw them out of the ability to make use of the mind to help them through self-experience. When that happens, they're in a very different place. They're highly vulnerable. They can be helped. That's about all I know. Mm
1: -hmm. You you just touched on... Question I wanted to ask you regarding violence, because, you know, it's, it's on everyone's mind, right? The violence um, that, you know, every day, you, you know, you're sort of inundated with it. And, and in the book, you, you write about sort of the loss of, uh, for the schizophrenic, the loss of illusions, and you write very beautifully about this, the loss of the illusion of, of, you know, as if we all walk around as if, you know, the sun will be shining tomorrow and tomorrow's a new day and, and you know, and and, and things will go on and there's some notion of progress. And I think you have, you, you describe this part of the schizophrenic experience as the loss of illusions. And so now, you know, we're, we're sort of less and less able at this moment, I would say to, um, to dumb down and say, oh, we're not capable of, we're capable of, of acts of, of extreme violence. And they seem, um, more, um, more frequent. Um, what's, how, how do we as psychoanalysts begin to, to weigh in and say something, if there is something that we can say about what, what impact will the loss of these illusions have upon us as a society? Do you have thoughts about that?
0: I think we need we need to feel safe, and uh, we need our children to feel safe. We want them to feel that it's a good world; they're safe; they don't need to worry. So, uh, the stories of Father Christmas or Easter bunnies and and tales like that and um, are illusions that presumably help them through the transitions we were discussing earlier. The hazards of being a child, going from one stage to the next. Those illusions, the illusion of safety are complex. If we didn't have them, I don't know that we could function. They they exist throughout our lifespan. Take, for example, the major religions, whether one is a, a theist or not a theist. Um, one has to respect that if you find life on earth simply too hazardous, too complicated, then belief that there's a parallel process, that there's a spiritual life, another place one can be Another world where one can relate to other beings, including to God or Allah uh, or Yahweh. Uh, I understand entirely why individuals would turn towards um, that so-called fundamentalism. Uh, Actually, that's not fundamentalism. That's religion. In order to live within the illusion of being protected, of feeling that one's life will be okay, even if it's existentially horrifying that one is still living a meaningful life, one is not simply rubbish on some heap, whether it's the Roman Empire that's throwing one away or whether it's some other uh, large group that's getting rid of individuals for their, for their positions. So yeah. we, we, need those, we need those illusions and we live by them. I think North Americans, and I've mentioned Hofstetter in the book, because of where we come from, because of the genesis of the, the Puritan need for radical innocence we have a very low tolerance for self-examination that leads us to look at the parts of our own personalities, that is, as a nation, that are extremely aggressive and very violent. We much prefer to project it and see it in other countries and nations. We're not hallucinating. I mean, there are radical and violent groups out there, for sure, but uh, one doesn't have to be a Kleinian, although it wouldn't help people to do a Kleinian training in my view. One doesn't have to be a client, to know, that projective identifications only work if you're accurate. You've got to be able to project that part of yourself that's violent or whatever into another object that is violent. Otherwise, it won't work. Mm -hmm. So Americans are, I think, moving away from a world of protective illusions to a universe now that's increasingly delusional. Uh, And that is very concerning because if you move from the protection of illusion to the so-called protections of delusion, that compromises mental capabilities you need to be able to think uh and going back to history um, if we want to look at a group like isis or ISIL or whatever we want to call them we know we have to go back into recent history to understand where these um extremely violent people have come from and you know maybe it may seem oh well that's the past i mean uh, uh Let history be the judges. We've got to survive. And indeed, we do have to survive. But one way to survive as well is to understand where these people come from. To say they're evil or monstrous, etc., might be true in some ways. But it's to fail in our job our responsibility as thoughtful thinking beings. Because if we're unable to think, if we just rely upon projective identification, we're innocent. They're evil. How do we destroy evil? We basically give up our mental life right and and ironically those people if they do want to destroy us they'll win that's how they'll win they'll turn us into idiots you know so uh why would one want to concede that to them
1: i have my head in my hands yeah <laughs> i appreciate your uh spelling that out for us helping us to think about it because i think uh we need help to think. I have to bring this interview to a close. So happy to have you here with us and um, to talk about so many important things that your your book touches upon. So um, I thank you uh, again for taking the time to talk to us at New Books and Psychoanalysis, for giving the listeners more to chew on. And uh, we always encourage the listeners, if you are having a response to this interview. Um, the webpage is for new books in psychoanalysis. is a place where you can write and articulate um, what what comes to mind. Um, is as we try to think together about things that are, are hard to think about. And perhaps uh, you know Christopher may take a look uh, as he did last time. And uh, people are writing in. He may may or may not. We haven't discussed this in advance, but he is always welcome to um, to respond. Uh, any final anything, Christopher, that you you felt uh, we didn't say or you didn't get to put into words here?
0: No, other than thank you very much. My apologies to those people whom I've inadvertently offended.
1: On that note, um, I will be back on the air shortly with Orna O'Fear's book on the history of the treatment of psychosis in the uh, United States in the post-war period. It will be an interesting follow-up to this, uh, this interview. So till then, this is Tracy Morgan saying bye-bye.